Well, good evening, everybody. We're glad you're here. We'll kick off a minute or two early. I wanted to say thanks to uh, Blake Baston for filling in for me. And honestly, there were so many people that could fill in around here. We have the best, I just think we have the best teachers of any church, absolutely. We are blessed with a lot of talent and use it a lot. All of our teachers teach a lot and they, do, they just do a great job. So I was really grateful for Blake filling in this time. Bill's filled in before, I know you love him. We just, we're just blessed. So we had a good trip to Israel, several of you have asked. We went twice this year. Uh, this is still before the class actually starts, so I feel like we can chat a personal thing. Uh, we did two trips this year because no one could go last year. Obviously, everything was closed down because of COVID. And we were afraid that we wouldn't be able to do our normal February slot. In fact, we were just within days of having to cancel it when Israel opened. So we did go this February, and so we booked a second one. We had a lot of people on the waiting list too, and we thought we'd do two. So, so it was good being there. It was, uh, we got to do everything we wanted to do. Tourism's coming back over there. Tourism's their number two industry now. Believe it or not, tech is their number one industry now. So Israel's got a lot of interesting biotech and other kind of technological things going, and that is their number one in industry right now. But tourism's a big deal, so they were happy to see us, uh, happy to see any tourists that are back. So we had a good trip and uh, missed you guys, prayed for you there. I feel like prayers from there probably count more than prayers from here. So I prayed for you from there. I hope that does some good. So in all seriousness, we're gonna finish this series in this lesson. Uh, this is the end of this semester, if you will, for Crossings Teaching. And I'll give you, at the end of this lesson, I'll tell you about our summer series and give you an idea of what I think would be interesting to talk about and see what you think about it. So anyway, let me start with a prayer and we'll jump in. This, by the way, this is, this might be my very favorite story about Jesus in the Bible. Uh, this is one, I, I've never gotten to the bottom of this story through a lot of years of study. So this will be interesting to study this together. Let's pray together. Lord, we're so grateful to you for the blessings you've showered upon us. And we know that we're in the midst of a world that seems divided, that seems hostile, that has so many problems and so many people suffering. And Lord, I pray that your hand would be here. I pray, Lord, that we would be beacons of light as you've intended us to be, to bring healing and peace into the world. Father, I pray that you would be with our leaders and turn their hearts toward you. Lord, I do pray for our number and for those who are sick. Pray, Father, for those who are suffering with grief, those who are anxious. Lord, I pray that we would open our hearts and open our hands and surrender our cares to you, that we would cast all our anxieties on you. We love you and we thank you in Christ's name, amen. All right, well, I'm gonna intro this lesson a little bit and give you a little background. So we're in John, as you can see from your handout, we're at the tail end of John 18, first part of John 19. And this is the story of Jesus and Pilate, Pontius Pilate. This story has so many layers. Anybody that's studied the Gospel of John very much knows that there's always at least two layers of meaning happening in the Gospel of John. John looks like a very simple book to read. It's simple to translate. It's simple language. But it's really got a lot going on. And this story is no exception. So if you remember, we have Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's on Thursday night. 
and he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's about to be taken away and betrayed by Judas. And so Judas comes with some soldiers, having taken some money to turn Jesus over to them. Why do they come late, late at night and try to get Jesus? Because Jesus is so popular with the people. They could have arrested Jesus anytime they wanted to arrest Jesus. He's teaching in the temple courts the whole week. I mean, the Sunday before he came riding in on a donkey and every day he's in the temple after that. But they realize if they arrest Jesus there, they're gonna have a riot on their hands. And of course, it's Passover week. I mean, there's 100,000 extra Jews in, in Jerusalem at that time. So easily they could start a riot. So they work this deal to get Jesus in the middle of the night. And so what you're gonna see happening here is all done in a very calculated way. So I want you to think about this being midnight-ish, somewhere in that time frame. And so they arrest Jesus uh, as he's been pointed out. And after they arrest him, they took him, I'm gonna, I'm gonna interweave two pieces from Matthew's account, but I really wanna stay with John. John does the most detail with this. But here's what he says after that. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. This is going to be a trial. In other words, they've got the elders and the scribes. Uh, scribes were experts in the law. And sideline, why are scribes experts in the law? Well, in those days, if you wanted to get a copy of the Bible, copy of the Torah, you hand wrote it. And you will not believe how painstaking it was to hand copy. It took about a year for a scribe to copy the one copy of the five books of Moses. Why? Because one mistake, you start over with that whole page. I mean, and it's painstaking and the calligraphy is amazing and you do certain ritual purifications at certain times. So but here's the point, the scribes were teachers of the law because having all they did was copy the law so they at least knew the law pretty well. So the scribes and the elders of the Jews were there in the high priest's house and Peter following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus so they might put him to death, but they found none though many false witnesses came forward. At last, so you get this idea of they're having a trial, which by the way, you can't have a trial at night in, according to Jewish law and custom. And so we're bending the rules here, right? Because you can't have this during the day. People know about this. You literally will have a right. Jesus was wildly popular with the people. And so, but they didn't find any. But finally, two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. He didn't answer any of the accusations. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so which is a circumlocutious way of saying, yes, I am. What you believe is correct. He said, but I tell you this, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. 
Then the high priest tore his robes and says, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him and some of them slapped him. So you get this illegal trial. At the end, they accuse him and convict him of blasphemy. Blasphemy is punishable by stoning. And so typically they would take people out of the city and they would stone them. Now since the Romans came along, capital punishment was not permitted to the Jews. Capital punishment wasn't permitted to local magistrates in any Roman province. I mean, they could enforce tons of laws, but they couldn't kill people and couldn't do capital punishment. But fundamentally, blasphemy, and you'll see that the Jews did this anyway at times, would have been to take him out and stone him. But that's not what they do. And there are several reasons here. There's awful lot of self-interest in politics happening in this story. And you know, follow the money, follow the politics, you will understand most of human behavior because this is fallen humanity. So here's the problem. He's wildly popular with the people. They desperately want to kill him. If they have a trial at night, accuse him of blasphemy, take him out and stone him, they've got a massive problem with the people because the people are not going to believe this. They're gonna go, why'd you do it at night? Why couldn't we hear what he had to say? How do we really know this is true? And now they become the bad guys and the people revolt against them. So Caiaphas is a shrewd political operator. And so what do they do? Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but so they could eat the Passover. So let's talk about what's going on here. The governor is a translation of a word. The Latin term is more specific about what Pontius Pilate was, whether he was a prefect, whether he was a governor, etc. But the New Testament always uses the word for governor. So he was the Roman ruler of this area. He didn't meddle, he didn't bother with civic affairs. All he wanted was taxes and keep the peace and make some money on the side. For himself, and that's really all he cared about, and that's all most Roman governors cared about. So they take him to Pilate because Pilate does have the power to do capital punishment. Now it was early morning, so when is this? The term early morning is a technical term that means 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. I'm not convinced it had to be before dawn, but think about it as being right around dawn. Why? Because they don't want the people to know what's going on. And so what they've done is the chief priests and the scribes and the council have had this trial. They've decided to take him to Pontius Pilate and get this deal done by the Romans and before anybody knows anything about it. That's a brilliant political move. So they get him killed, but they don't have any pushback. It's the Romans doing it. And they do it before anybody can step in and cause a riot or stop it or whatever. So think about them coming, oh, around dawn that morning, as early as possible. It was very common for Roman prefects to be up early 
And uh, they were just early morning culture. They got up early. They might finish their work by 10 or 11 that day. And then through the heat of the day, they would rest and relax, etc. So nothing about this is historically uh, surprising at all. In fact, it really makes sense historically. I want to give you a sense of this has very much the ring of, of eyewitness truth to it. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters, so they would not be defiled. So this is the festival. So you have the Passover, and then right afterwards, you have seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So those eight days were the Passover festival. According to the Mishnah, that's the oral traditions of the Jews, this is not in the Bible, that going into a Gentile's dwelling would make you ritually unclean during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, probably because they had yeast in the house. And if you remember, during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Jews got rid of all leaven out of their homes, all the yeast out of their homes. It was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Interesting story about that, but that's another lesson for another time. So they couldn't go in for that reason. They also would then be around people who could also have been ritually unclean. Maybe they were around a dead body or they'd been to a cemetery. So they would have to go through this ritual cleansing at least a day. Some things could take seven days, but it's a major pain in the neck. So they don't want to go in because then they, they probably cannot eat the feast at least that day. So they wanted to eat the Passover. So let's talk for a minute about the Roman governors because this is really interesting. So we're gonna take a sideline and talk about the historicity of this. So this is a map of, of Israel. So you'll see Jerusalem down here, down by the Dead Sea. Where did the Roman governors stay? They stayed right there at Caesarea Maritima, Caesarea on the sea. Herod the Great built this place in, he died in 4 BC. So when Herod died, he split up the kingdom. The Romans permitted him to split up the kingdom amongst his boys. So you got Herod Archelaus, you have Herod Antipas, you have Herod Philip, but none of them had the political stroke that Herod did. So the Roman governor said, nice palace, think I'm going to live there. And so the Roman governor stayed there. This is what it looks like today. Magnificent site, archeological site. This is more than 2000 years old. Little water damage, I admit, but it's, it's, in, it's really for an archeological site, it's in great shape. And let me show you what it looked like. So this is, you have a hippodrome here. See the chariot races. You have a massive, gorgeous theater, which is still there and still being used, by the way. You have uh, Herod's palace right there, it goes right out. He had a swimming pool that literally went right out into the Mediterranean. You have palaces here for official business. I mean, it's a massively beautiful place right on the Mediterranean Ocean. And that's needless to say where the Roman governors stayed. And that was Pontius Pilate's headquarters. One interesting thing is Pontius Pilate historically is the best attested governor of Judea that there is, meaning there's more evidence of Pontius Pilate outside the Bible than any other prefect, any other governor of Judea 
period. In other words, there's a lot of extra biblical sources and one that's just interesting is here in this place was found this stone. It's called the Pilate Stone. And the first, this is in Latin, but it's really easy to read. So that says Tiberius, who was Caesar at the time and who appointed Pontius Pilate. This says, this is missing. The P-O-N-T is missing and there's the I, the U, the S, the P-I-L-A-T, Pontius Pilatus, but Pontius Pilate. So this part is missing in the stone, the rest is there. That's about as good an evidence as you ever get that Pontius Pilate lived here, okay? I mean, it's just, there's really strong attestation to the historicity of this story. So it's really interesting where he was, but at this point in time, that's not where he was because during the major festivals and Passover definitely was one of them, is the Roman governors would go and stay in Jerusalem because of the possibility of revolt. So they had so many Jews in one place, they brought a lot of extra troops, and the governor himself came down so that they could squelch any problems very quickly and very effectively. So where did he live when he was there? Two possibilities. One is this is the Temple Mount basically at the time of Jesus. So you see the temple of, of, uh, that Herod the Great rebuilt right there. And attached to the Temple Mount, this is huge by the way, this area is like 20 football fields. This is a massive area. And this temple is way big. However big you imagine it is, double it. I mean, this was like one of the ancient wonders of the ancient world. Herod, he at least did things on a big scale. And this rivaled anything in the Roman world. But built right beside it is a fortress. You can see it here. It's called the Antonia Fortress. It was named after Mark Antony. And the Antonia Fortress was the Roman headquarters of the troops that were there. And they were right by the temple so that they could look down onto the Temple Mount because if trouble was gonna start, that was a pretty good place. Having been in Israel last week, when there were some, some difficulties on the Temple Mount, it's still the place that trouble starts, okay? So they would look down into there. You may remember that the Apostle Paul, later in time, this is after our, what we're talking about with Jesus and Pilate, was assaulted by a mob that was gonna put him to death on the Temple Mount, and one of the centurions came down from the Antonia Fortress and rescued him and said, what is the big deal here? And so Roman troops were always watching the Temple Mount. That's, I'm gonna give you an opinion here. This is the most likely place that Pontius Pilate stayed, in my opinion. Where else could he have stayed? This is uh, interesting. There's a, you can't see it very well in this, but there is a little walkway here that was built to attach to Herod's palace. This is not Herod the Great, this is one of the boys. And so if they were on good terms, you would expect Herod to invite Pontius Pilate to, Pilate to be his guest, but they hated each other's guts. And so Pontius Pilate could have been at this palace, 
but seems much more likely to me that he was at the Antonia Fortress. And if indeed that's correct, either way makes no difference to our story, I wanna give you a little close up to what it looked like. This would be the front of the Antonia Fortress. So I want you to imagine everything that's about to happen happening on these steps and this area around here. This is very large, by the way. This is a model. This is very, very large. And so Pontius Pilate would be coming out. This is what Pontius Pilate looked like. Pontius Pilate would be coming out and dealing with them right there in the midst of this, of this power of Rome, okay? So that's where our story is happening. Pontius Pilate came out to them because he knew enough to be at least somewhat sensitive to the Jewish religious sensibilities. He hated the Jewish leaders. The Jewish leaders and the Jewish people hated him, partly because he was Roman, partly because he was Pontius Pilate. So Pilate enters the story. Pilate was appointed the governor of Judea by Tiberius Caesar in 26 AD. So at the time of this story, he's probably been the governor, depending on when you date this, uh, let's say four years or so uh, at this point. That, that's how I would date it. And he served until 37 AD when he was recalled to Rome to face charges that were brought against him by the Jews. So he's been there about four years. And Pilate went outside to them and he said, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. So you get a sense already that this isn't gonna go well, right? That these guys don't like each other. So what are the Jews saying? They're saying, and by the way, from extra biblical sources, Pilate was considered a weak and vacillating man. And as so often happens with that kind of character, he exhibited control and dealt with his insecurities through brutality, and he was very brutal during his reign, even for a Roman. And so they say, if you weren't doing evil, we wouldn't have delivered him over to you. Just go kill him. Pilate said to him, well, if that's the case, take him yourselves, judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, now we get to the crux of the issue, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. So Pilate goes, ah, so now I know why you're here. And the Jews are like, already frustrated that he won't just do what they want. And John adds this aside, and this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken, because Jesus himself said how he was gonna die to show what kind of death he was going to die. So this is pretty interesting because the normal punishment for blasphemy would be stoning. And Pontius Pilate could have said, well, go stone him yourself, you have my permission. But Jesus said he was gonna, he was going to be crucified. Well, that's how Romans killed slaves, uh, non-Roman people, very humiliating way to die, painful and intimidating way to die. But it's really interesting because for the Jews, I want you to understand just how much animosity they have toward the Jewish leaders, how much animosity they have toward Jesus. They not only want him to die, and they not only want it to not be their fault, but they want him to be crucified because Deuteronomy, Chapter 23 says, cursed is anyone who is hung upon a tree. What does that mean? Crucified. In other words, it is a curse to be crucified. Jews didn't do this at all. And so I want you to understand the depth 
of the hostility that they have toward Jesus. I know it's hard for us to understand, but they not only want him to die, they not only want him to die in a politically expedient way, they want him to die in a way that shows he's actually cursed by God. And so, Pilate entered his headquarters and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? By the way, all four, gospel, all four gospels talk about this trial which I put in my discussion questions, like it would be interesting to think about why. Uh, it would be interesting to think about what if this part weren't here? Would it change anything in the gospels? But they all four have it, and they specifically all four have this question. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did other people say this about me? In other words, what are you asking me? And Pilate says, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answers. Now notice this, Jesus never actually answers any question Pilate asks him. I mean, you, you really get, I want you to see this before we get into it. You'll just see it over and over. He's standing here, Jesus is in change. You know what's about to happen to him. He knows what's about to happen to him. Pontius Pilate, most powerful guy, literally in this whole area. And so he's standing before Pontius Pilate and you get the idea that Jesus is in charge of what's going on here. You know, he is not even mildly intimidated. And I'll tell you why I think that is in just a little bit. But he says, well, I'm not gonna answer your question, but I will tell you this. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, don't you think my servants would have been fighting so I wouldn't be delivered to the Jews? But my kingdom is not from this world. Very interesting what Jesus is doing here. So from Pontius Pilate's point of view, he's basically hearing this guy and he goes, this is some kind of holy man. I don't understand what the issue is here. I do not care about this at all. This guy's obviously not a threat. I do not know what these Jews are worked up about. But Jesus is saying something really important here. You see, the Jewish thought on the Messiah, and I think you all know this, was that the Messiah would come and be a conquering king like David. He would rule over Israel and throw off the Romans or any other oppressors. What Jesus is effectively saying here is that he didn't come to become king of a small area called Judea in the first century world. But he came for something way bigger. He is king of something far more than this temporal kingdom of Judea. And so he clarifies now, Jesus speaks very clearly at this point about who he is and what he's doing. The time has come. And he basically says, you have no idea what my kingdom really is. And as the Bible unfolds, you realize that the believers begin to un actually understand what this all means. So then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. You see, Pilate's desperately trying to catch up in this conversation. You know, it's just not going where he thinks it's, it's, it needs to go. And Jesus answered, yes. I mean, what that basically says is yes. And this is one of the most profound statements in the scriptures. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to testify to the truth. The fundamental issue, which cannot be separated from redemption, can't be separated from the cross, can't be separated from the empty tomb, is the idea of truth, what is true. 
everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pontius Pilate said to him, what is truth? Now in Pilate's world, Pilate's a 21st century man. Pilate would get along really well in the Western world in the 21st century. Because if you think about it in our culture, and I don't wanna get off on a dialogue here, I just want to make this, this is like a duh observation. This isn't even debatable. Is truth has been deconstructed in the, the loudest portions of our culture. Let me put it that way. The, the loudest voices in our culture come from a place where truth is an individual decision. And that's because you get so wrapped up in you, you kind of lose the idea of what identity means. And, and we consequently, you see the fragmentation of the idea of a personhood. You will be hard pressed to find someone in this culture, in this secular culture, who can actually define for you what a person is. Heaven's sakes, we can't find anybody to define what a woman is. But my point is, and I'm serious about this, there's a fragmentation of some key elements because of the deconstruction of what, of the idea of truth, and truth being a very subjective, personal thing. Well, Pontius Pilate lives in that world. What's true doesn't matter. It's what's expedient. It's what gets power. It's what serves my self-interest. Truth becomes a non-functional concept, and if you watch the news, you'll go, absolutely. You see a great deal of that in any culture of any time. And so Pontius Pilate, here's what he needs to hear. He basically uh, says, this guy is no problem whatsoever. So after he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I don't see any problem with this guy. I mean, you seem to be wrapped around the axle about something here, but this guy is not a threat to me or Rome or anybody else. But I'll tell you what. He says, and you can tell that Pilate's looking for a practical way. He understands at this point that he's being manipulated for the Jews' purposes. He also understands that if he kills this guy, he's the bad guy. He understands that these same Jews that want him killed could tomorrow write a letter to Rome complaining about the fact that he killed an innocent man. I mean, this is the world of, quote, self-interest, and power, what we tend to refer to as the dark side of politics. So he understands that. So he says, I don't find any guilt in him, I'm not gonna kill him, but I'll tell you what, I have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. What do you want me to release to you, the king of the Jews? He's getting a little bit back at them, isn't he? So now, from now on, he calls Jesus the king of the Jews. And if you remember when he crucifies Jesus, he said, tell them to write, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And the Jews were like, no, he said he was king, he's not really our king. And Pilate says, write what I told you to write. He's like, you guys wanna play with me? I'm gonna mess with you too. And so he says, why don't I release the king of the Jews to you? And they cried out, not this man, Barabbas. Now Barabbas was, robber's not a good translation. Barabbas was um, an insurrectionist. Um, he was a terrorist. Then Pilate so he, he releases him instead. Now, I wanna stop here for a second. I wanna kinda of correct what I think is a misapprehension about what's happening here. And I know it's easy to make an assumption in our minds about who these people are in this crowd. Now, remember, it's dawn. We've just come from Caiaphas' house. 
we got the chief priests, we got the elders, we got a bunch of ruffians who they've brought forward saying, somebody bring an accusation against Jesus. That's who these people are. This is not the same group of people that shouted Hosanna the Sunday before. You know what they're doing? They're sleeping. This is not the same group of people. The ones that are saying crucify him and we want Barabbas rather than Jesus is not the group of people who were praising Jesus. In fact, they're gonna be shocked when they wake up and see what has happened and that was the whole plan. So you've got a kind of a picked crowd here. And so Pilate took Jesus and flogged him and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, hail king of the Jews and they struck him with their hands. So let me pause and say, what's happening here then? So Pilate says, all right, I gotta release Barabbas. I'll tell you what, I'll go flog this guy. And then he's, he's at this point, it's like, I'm not gonna kill this guy. I'm not gonna be your dupe in this deal, but I also gotta get along with you. I'll just beat the tar out of him. And then maybe that'll be okay. Romans had three kinds of flogging. The first was a less severe beat, and there are Latin names for all of these, but I won't bore you with that. The, the least severe was a beating, and it was not nice. And it was often with a, a warning for kind of civil disobedience. So you could be beaten, Paul was beaten like this several times. He was beaten with canes, and that's the way the Romans did this. So he, he, he experienced this. The next level was called uh, it was more, think more about a flogging. It also had a Latin name. And it would be like, think about whips. You know, basically you're being whipped uh, with a whip and it would cause blood and that kind of thing. And that was pretty severe beating. The worst kind is, we usually translate it scourging, whatever, was, and this is, I know this is brutal, but if you've ever seen the movie, The Passion, they get this historically exactly right. Now that movie comes from a Catholic point of view and there are things in that movie that happen that are not in the Bible, they're Catholic tradition. But I will recommend it to you highly in this sense. It does indeed capture the historicity of pretty much everything that's happening, except the extra biblical stuff. But this scene of the scourging of Jesus is brutal and absolutely historically accurate. So they would take these whips and they would embed bone and other things in the ends of it. And this is for people that were going to be killed. In fact, I'm telling you now evidence not from the Bible. I'm gonna tell you about from extra biblical sources at the time. Very common for people to die from the scourging. And they would whip you with this. And of course, all those things would stick and they would rip away your flesh. And they would take two legionnaires and they would both be hitting you with whips until they got tired of doing it. It was brutal, just unbelievably brutal. Uh, there, there are depictions uh, in historic sources that talk about, you could just literally see people's bones showing through when it was done. I mean, you are going to die. It's just a matter of time. And you think to yourself, if you ever watched that, you ever thought about it, wow, you know, man's inhumanity to man. And that's true, but I don't want you to think it's restricted to them. If you stop and think about it, 
When it, whatever you read in the Bible is true for mankind. It's true for humanity. Fallen humanity is, it has the same thing in it. I mean, we could just go through history, but let's just start with recent history. Guards uh, at the uh, concentration camps in World War II, where you kill six million Jews. You've got guards at concentration camps in North Korea. You have concentration camps in China. You have human trafficking going on today. You have the whole slave trade for 400 years in the whole Western world. I mean, it, I don't want you to think this is unusual and say, oh my gosh, weren't people mean back then? People are still the same. And I want you to understand that because you and I are Jesus in this story. Does that make sense? We are encountering a world like the first century world. You think, well, we're far more civilized. That's a nice little illusion if you can hold on to it for a while. But that is simply not true. The world needs Jesus Christ as much now as it ever needed him then. And so they flogged him. And so when Pilate said, there's a change in the story, when he says, I find no guilt in him, the trial is over. This should be the end of it. It's like, I'm gonna flog him, we're done. I'm not killing this guy. I find no guilt in him. That's a judicial pronouncement. So what happens then? This is the account in, in uh, Matthew. And I, I brought this up because there's another element playing into this. So you got the Jews and Pilate. This is so complicated, it's really interesting. And here's Jesus, the only guy that actually knows what's going on in this whole story. So you got the Jews trying to manipulate Pilate into getting rid of Jesus and the people will be mad at Pilate. You've got Pilate who doesn't like the Jews, isn't gonna be used as a pawn, but can't afford to tick him off too much, so he's just gonna beat the tar out of him and try to escape that way. But in the meantime, Pilate knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered Jesus to him. And while he was sitting on the judgment seat, while this is going on, his wife wakes up, remember this is sometime after 6 a.m., and sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man. That's an interesting phrase. For I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. This is not the regular people. This is a crowd they've got. That's really interesting and you need to understand what's, what's happening here. So when the Jews hear Jesus say he's the son of God, blasphemy, you have to die. When the Romans hear something like this, the Romans were very superstitious. That's not a particularly bad thing to say to them. In the pantheon of Roman gods, you have all kinds of demigods that are the result of gods and humans mating with one another. I mean, tons of them. Think Hercules, think you know, all these Achilles, think of all these heroes. Okay, they're demigods. And so they're kind of divine people and they're kind of favored. And all the Greek and Roman legends are these demigods are always the center of turmoil, always the center of wars. You know, they're, they're at the center of events. And there's always someone trying to kill them. I mean, read the Iliad, read the Odyssey, read the Aeneid. I mean, all of these epics. But the god or goddess 
who is their parent, is always there taking care of them and punishing anybody else. So his wife says, I had a dream about this guy, don't have anything to do with this guy. So what's Pontius Pilate hearing? He's like, whoa, this could be, I do not want to get mixed up in this. What if he is the son of a god? What if, you know, Jupiter's going to be ticked off at me and smite me if I do something to him? Seriously, this is, their, this is his mindset. You've got to understand how he's looking at this as well. They didn't care about blasphemy, didn't care about what the Jews believe, but he is superstitious. So Pilate then went out again to them and said, see, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing a crown of thorns, purple robe, bloody and beaten, and Pilate says to them, behold the man. Now what's he doing? He's doing two things at once. He's a, he's a pretty good little politician here. So one thing is he's expecting to find some sympathy like, I beat the tar out of this guy. He's bloody, he's beaten, whatever. Can we just let it go at this? You know, I think we're done here, people. But also, wearing a little purple robe is, that's your king and I just kicked his butt, right? So you, you really got a lot of bad blood going on here. Now I realize we're not talking about Jesus much, are we? Jesus at the moment is just the element, he's just the pawn that the politics are being played around. And when I say politics, I mean that in the sense of, and I want to define what I mean by that word in this lesson, is power interests and self-interests being pursued at the expense of other people. The word politics has a pretty neutral meaning, but this is power and self-interest being pursued at the expense of other people. And you see that throughout all of history. Politics can be a good thing. It can help us all live better together. It can be a very dark thing. It can be the pursuit of self-interest at the expense of other people. Well, that's what's happening here. And Jesus is in the middle of this. And Jesus is the only one who doesn't, isn't saying anything. I mean, this is one of the weirdest circumstances. And so, Pilate said to them, behold the man. But when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said, take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. Well, that's kind of permission, but they don't want to do it. Why? Because they don't want to be guilty of doing this, right? Then the people are going to rise up and throw them out. But the Jews answered, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. Very interesting thing to say. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Now you understand why he's even more afraid. Why is he afraid in the first place? Well, he doesn't want to riot. He realizes he's in a difficult political spot here. But when he says, this guy says he's a son of God, he's like, whoa. My wife just sent me a message. I could be meddling in things that are way beyond my pay grade here. I do not want to get on the wrong side of any divine beings. And so what does he do? Takes Jesus back in and says, where are you from? What's he asking? I need to know more about you. I mean, I know they're ticked at you. I know that you're just some dreamer about some kingdom, but I kind of need to know, like, was your dad a god or anything like that that I might need to know about? And Jesus didn't give him an answer. So Pilate said to him, are you kidding? You won't speak to me? 
do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Now, here's really the interesting thing, is the fact that Jesus is not intimidated here comes from two reasons. One is, Jesus is the only person in this whole story who actually knows what he wants to do. He's the only one who actually knows what he's about. Everybody else is grabbing for power, grabbing for political ascendancy, playing this little spitting contest between the Jews and Pilate, the high priests worried about losing their position and will the people revolt, will the Romans throw us out? Everybody's grasping for something in life. Jesus is the only guy that's not anxious. He's just not anxious, why? Well, he's in the middle of some very unpleasant things. He's not inhuman in the sense that, oh, he's gonna enjoy what's about to happen to him. That's not the point. He's not anxious because he knows exactly what he is about. And this is going exactly according to plan. And he has confidence that it's going exactly according to plan because his trust in God's sovereignty. You see, Jesus says this. He said, you wouldn't have any authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. What's he saying? God is actually sovereign here, Pontius, not you. Oh, you have some power, but you're not bending history here. Don't kid yourself. Can you kill me? Sure. In fact, Jesus once said to his followers, earlier he said, do not fear him who can kill your body and then do nothing else. Fear the one who can kill your body and cast you into hell. In other words, he's saying, killing my body is, I'm gonna die anyway. In other words, you have the power to do that, but you really don't have any power over how God is gonna take history. And that's true for every leader, every ruler. I mean, think about the most powerful people in the world today and how much you look up to them and think, oh my gosh, will Vladimir Putin use nuclear weapons? Yeah, you know how many people like that are dead and buried and you don't even know their names? The whole history bends to God's purposes and that's what Jesus is saying. God's actually sovereign. He said, therefore, the one who delivered me over to you has a greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, and here's their final straw. If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Now what you have to understand is the Jews had some political power in Rome. Why? Because they gave a lot of money to political campaigns. And that's the way the world works now, that's the way the world works then. They had patrons in Rome whom they funded. They didn't have total control, but they had influence. And in fact, in 37 AD, Pontius Pilate's gonna have a bunch of Samaritans killed, and they're gonna be successful in having him recalled to answer charges for that in Rome. So they're not powerless. So what are they saying? Boy, you would sure not like me to send an email to the emperor saying Pontius Pilate is okay with a king instead of Caesar. And so that's, that's a potent threat to him. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat in a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic it's called Gabbatha. 
Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover, about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, behold your king. And they cried, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? At this point, justice has gone out the window, right? As soon as self-interest and power pursuits get involved, justice is usually the first casualty. That's true in our society, it's true in every society uh, since the first century and before. So justice is gone. Now we're down to just raw self-interest. So Pontius Pilate knows he's going to have to crucify Jesus. He knows he's not gonna win this battle, but as he does it, he's gonna humiliate them as much as possible. He said, so let me get this straight. You want me to crucify your king. And that's pretty brutal. And the chief priest's answer in probably a low point in all of Jewish religious history, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Now in uh, the Matthew account, here's what it said. When Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood, see to it yourselves. And the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. So why does, G, why does Pontius Pilate wash his hands? So sometimes people, there are two traditions in the church. Ancient church, the Western ancient church thought that Pontius Pilate was a bad guy. Eastern ancient church thought that Pontius Pilate was a good guy who the Jews forced him to do this. No question Pontius Pilate is not a good guy, no matter what happened here. There are no good guys in this story. There's only one good guy in this story, and Pontius Pilate is not that guy. So Pontius Pilate is washing his hands, I suspect not so much because he is saying that I don't want any part of killing an innocent man this is not the first innocent man or the last innocent man he would kill. I don't think he lost a lot of sleep over that. What he's saying is, I think partly because of his own superstition and conscience, if anybody's watching up there, this is not on me, right? And also the idea that you don't be sending any emails about me. I'm gonna give you what you want, but don't be writing any emails about me, no complaints. And so he did what they wanted. Well, I wanna draw a couple of lessons out of this. We have time to talk about some, some key takeaways, but you know how they do at the end of some movies, what happened to them later? You know, you get to the end and like, so-and-so ended up in federal penitentiary, you know, and so-and-so, yeah, whatever. Well, let's, what happened to these people? So the chief priests in this story, 30 years later, they are so afraid of, they're sitting on a power balance they need to appease the Romans, but they can't appease them too much or the people will revolt and they'll lose their control over the people. If they don't keep the people pacified, the Romans will take their position. So the chief priests and the rulers were in a very precarious position. They basically needed to be very two-faced. To the Romans, they needed to be fairly cooperative, insolent, but cooperative. To the people, they needed to look like we're doing everything we can to stop these evil Romans, okay? And so they're always sitting on this. 
They were able to sit on that balance for about 30 more years, and in 66 AD, even though they did not want this to happen, a rebellion erupts, engulfs the whole nation. The Romans are indeed killed and uh, kicked out temporarily, but four years later in 70 AD, not only has uh, Vespasian and his son Titus killed a million Jews, they also destroy the temple. And when I say they destroy the temple, they go up on that mount, which is pretty much all that's left today, is that big temple mount still there. But they literally disassembled the temple. They didn't just burn the wood, they brought in engineers and they took it down stone by stone and shoved the stones off the temple mount. They literally disassembled the temple and there has not been a temple since that day, since 70 AD. So the chief priests who are trying so hard and compromising everything they fundamentally believe in trying to kill Jesus have another 30 years of peace before the worst thing they can imagine happens to them. What about Pontius Pilate? Well, I told you that a few years after this, he's recalled to Rome to face charges before Tiberius Caesar because of having uh, just murdered a bunch of Samaritan Jews. And so before he gets there, fortunately, Tiberius died. And Caligula, who is batty as all get out, you know, comes to the throne. And there's no evidence that he actually ever went on trial. Early church tradition says that he committed suicide. No one actually knows. But Pilate appears to have been a fairly tormented figure. And so his end doesn't go well. Nobody ends well out of this except the guy that got beaten and crucified and raised from the dead and you and me. We are the only benefactors of this. The priests didn't get what they want. Pontius Pilate didn't get what he wanted. The Roman Empire 200 years later is Christian. I mean, the way this plays out is the weakest person in this story prevails. And I really want you to remember that. That's the way God works over and over and over, not just in the Bible, but also in history. So a couple of points that I want to make here is first, political considerations. And when I say this, I want to be careful that I'm talking because again, politics can be a very good thing. Politics is helping us live together better, but there is a piece of it when you get power-related and self-interested pursuit at the expense of others. That's a bad form of politics. But when that uh, begins to rule, justice does not happen. Oppression tends to happen. Injustice tends to happen. And so the loss of any idea of what is true, of what is just, and what is right, and replacing it with, what's best for me, what gets me in power, those two things don't go together. And you saw that play out this way. But even so, this works out the way God wants it to work out. Jesus is the only one in this story who's certain of his purpose. I, you may or may not have ever seen this movie. It, it's pretty well known, but it's a little older. But there was a really well done movie made about the life of uh, General Patton, World War II. 
And uh, it was really well done, very historically accurate about Patton, but there's this one scene that's always stuck with me. So General Patton's going into a new command because the US troops are losing. And so he comes rolling into the headquarters one morning and sure enough, the troops aren't in good shape, the officers haven't shaved, they don't have their uniforms on right. Man, he just comes bustling in and he goes around a corner and you hear uh, you know, some cursing actually. And so he, he falls over this soldier. Soldier gets up and goes, what? Oh, and then salutes, right? And Patton says, what do you do? He gets right in his face and says, what are you doing here? And he said, sir, I'm just trying to get some sleep. And so Patton says, then get back down there because you're the only guy in this entire organization that knows what he's trying to do. And it's always stuck with me Having been in large business organizations, I've thought, how true that is, you know? But Jesus is the only one who actually is sure of his purpose. How in the world can you get Pontius Pilate, who's full of anxiety? I mean, his wife says, man, this is bad news. Don't have anything to do with this guy. He's like, oh no, you know, I gotta appease the Jews. I hate their guts. I'm not gonna be their pawn. How do I manage this? He's got a lot of anxiety. Jewish leaders have tons of anxiety in this thing. Jesus is the only guy there who's not anxious. He's suffering, but he's not anxious because he knows what he's going to do. And I put in there, and so are we. And the point I wanna make to this is I'm not trying to trivialize difficulties in life, but that when the day comes that you are single-mindedly, wholeheartedly, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and your mind and your soul and your strength. And don't, this is not me criticizing you. I'm just drawing this observation. When we are as single-minded in our focus as Jesus is and what the Holy Spirit is turning us into, we too can let anxiety go because we are so committed to our purpose and we are absolutely convinced that God is sovereign. There are plenty of people that have the ability to kill your body. There are plenty of people that have the ability to make you suffer. And by the way, it is likely to happen at some point in life. But God is sovereign. And when we are so fixed on our calling and our purpose, and when we see beyond the limits of this life, we can be standing in situations like that and not be anxious or worried. There's a difference between anxiety and suffering. Suffering you're gonna get. Anxiety is an optional feature that we tend to wanna opt into. And I'm just saying, maybe we just don't check the yes, I'll have a side of anxiety with this. Suffering is enough on its own. But Jesus has that single-minded purpose that whatever happens here will work out. And to tell you, just to give you an idea, because you may say, yeah, Terry, but I'm not Jesus. Good point. Nevertheless, look then to the apostles. You get the 12 apostles. They're not the only ones who suffered, but you know more about them. And it's not a coincidence that things didn't go well for them. Oh, they were successful, why? Because they were faithful. They did what God wanted. None of them lived pleasant lives. Now you might think that a Hollywood ending of this would be Jesus dies and the disciples prosper and life gets better and everybody becomes a Christian and the emperor repents and said, oh my gosh, I was so mean, I'm gonna be nice from now on. And everything goes well and the disciples all had a good time and lived a good life. That's not what happens. 
it's intentional that their lives were that hard. Why? To show you this is true. And when we have that single-minded focus, we too will be able to endure the difficulties of this world because God is sovereign and the Spirit is in us. People just like you and me in the millions and, through, and in the billions throughout 2,000 years have done this very thing. So I want this story to come home to you and if I took away one lesson, it would be this. Simply that Jesus, through his complete focus and trust in God, is the only guy in this story, weakest guy in this story, only guy in this story, that is not worried or anxious. And I thought to myself, wouldn't that be something awesome to have? I can't control the suffering in my life. I can't control when or how I will die, but I can control whether or not I'm gonna worry a lot about it, or whether or not I'm gonna be anxious, or am I going to, as First Peter says, cast all my anxiety on God, and I'm actually going to have faith, which means to trust. God, I do not know what you're working out here, but I know you're working out something. I believe that all things, all things, and all the powerful people in the world, God works all things together for good for those who love him. And so I hope you're encouraged by this story. It's a sad story. I actually like this story because to me, this is the moment of triumph in the darkest hour. And the key to that triumph is what it's always been. Do I trust God or do I not trust God? And I pray that the Spirit gives us more and more faith as time goes on. Thank you guys for uh, hanging in through this series and I hope it's been fun. I do wanna tell you about our summer series. We do four Wednesdays in July. And usually uh, I like to do biblical things, obviously, because we're here to study the Bible because I believe it's true and it builds our faith. But having just been in Israel twice in the past three months, it's occurred to me that this might be of interest to you but not many people know the facts about the modern state of Israel, and there are definite tie-ins to the idea of the sovereignty of God, because it's not so much that there's misinformation out there. I mean, I suppose that's a thing. What, what really happens is selective information. Some things that are true are being said but they're being called out of the whole picture to spin things. And uh, as a historian, I'm really interested in the good, the bad, and the ugly. And so I was thinking about, what if we spent some time talking about the modern state of Israel and uh, how it got there? So we could talk about the wars in the 20th century. There are four key wars that affected the Middle East we could talk about the idea of orthodox religion. What role does it play? So you get the orthodoxy of the Jews. And I'd like to talk about, and then of course, the role of the Jews in the world today. And so that's a little bit of a departure, but if you guys think that's interesting, it might be kind of fun to talk about that and get just the real deal of what actually happened and what forces then are shaping the Middle East, which if you stop and think about it, the Middle East ought to be the backwater of planet Earth, and yet for some reason, it's always center stage. So anyway, think about that. Send me an email if you get a better idea, but otherwise, let's get back together in July and let's uh, talk about some current events. Thank you guys very much. <laughs>